part of my mission really is to develop technology that is in service of humanity, not the other way around. Technology mm -hmm. makes a wonderful tool, but a, a terrible master. I became interested in science and technology to improve human function. The current step that I'm making though is expanding beyond the devices themselves, the exoskeletal robot, the human brain, the human operating system. Now that's really the technology that needs to be advanced. To describe myself more in the vein of what Douglas Rushkoff calls team human. In the absence of a value system that knows how to recognize actual human values rather than just time spent on a screen, isolating a lot of us. I am developing a value system, Cinesapia, the collective quest for wisdom. I see us at a point of great acceleration and potential inflection. Our collective project of world building needs to be communicative and connected and iterative and open and curious and diverse and those all need to be integrated together. I'm thinking in an Italian word. Go ahead, delight us with the Italian, trust me. All the ladies will love it. everyone to another brand new episode of Nomadic Nomads. I'm Albert Kim, possible long-lost relative of Kim Jong-un. And with me today is a man who's so smart and good-looking that I'm pretty damn close to switching sides. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Biorobotics Institute of Scuola Superiore Sant'Anna. That's in Italy, if you couldn't tell. Where, as a neurorehabilitation engineer and researcher, he's working to transform the human condition using a variety of ultra-high-tech modalities, including wearable robotics, tactile feedback, neuromodulation, and even brain-machine interfacing. Shout out to Elon Musk. But besides working on the hardware to upgrade us physically, he's also endeavoring to elevate us spiritually with a nascent cultural OS named Cinesapia, which aims at using its core principles to facilitate humanity's ongoing quest for embodied knowledge, which we call wisdom. Nomads, please help me in introducing a connected human being seeking the truth and beauty in all things. A Superman who's come to empower us mere mortals to be supermen, superwomen, and super non-binaries alike. Donning his cape, he goes by Cinesapien, but as one of us, he's known as the one and only Zach McKinney. Thank you so much for coming on today, Zach. My pleasure, Albert. Uh, thank you for that colorful introduction. I'll say it is the, the most energetic, the most generous, and the most delightfully absurd that uh, I've ever seen. Thank so, you so uh, much. Yeah. Thank you. I, mean, I, I definitely aim for all of those characteristics. I could have been much more absurd, but I, I held back for today, knowing your well, background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the question of plausibility versus absurdity actually has implications both in in culture and uh, and also in, in science but anyway i'll i'll leave that rabbit hole for later mm, uh, yes, we're here we to have to a that. conversation yes yeah, sure so again so zach uh if you recall how we met uh would you care to let our lovely audience know how you cross paths with a whack job like me uh, give yourself some credit, friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think we all need to embrace our own weirdness mm -hmm. and, and own it as well. So uh, I'm definitely first in line there. Um, but you and I crossed paths and uh, exchanged uh, 
some thoughtful reflections on a an online platform. The platform was Circle, but the channel slash community is is Rebel Wisdom, and uh, it's just one of of several that uh, that I've become interested in uh, of late in the space of collective sense making and exploring to and awakening to the extent to which our current understanding and our sense-making institutions and our media are uh, proving to be increasingly limited in the mm. picture they're giving us and our, you know, our ability to, to create a common picture and navigate that space as a collective, as a society. So that's the, the space that Rebel Wisdom explores. You and I exchanged some, uh, some interesting uh, remarks on, on their online platform. And I, I think we, we've definitely mixed it up in some of the live sessions as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm here because I'm interested in noetic nomads and in what sort of medium that is evolving to be and, uh, and sort of how you see it as, um, you know, complementary to, uh, to your journey. Mm, yeah. Um, thank you that uh, you express your interest in noetic nomads. Um, I'm hoping one day that, you know, I'm not quite at uh, Rebel Wisdom's numbers. I believe they have something around 220,000 subscribers. I have, I think, around 40 something. So I'm not quite there yet. But one day I have to be perhaps in this ecology of spaces such as uh, Rebel Wisdom, but with my own little niche, which, of course, with my character and personality behind it, it's going to be a little bit different from theirs and, you know, be its own unique and weird little space. And, um, and again, so again, like, as you mentioned, we met on the Rebel Wisdom Circle and you had a very interesting intro, uh, which definitely caught my attention, which is why I definitely want to reach out to you and have a conversation with you. And obviously when I, after I reached out and then I looked into your work, I was like, this is amazing stuff. Like, as I stated in your introduction, like you, your background, again, like a neuro, neuro rehabilitation engineer, researcher, you work in fields like wearable robotics and and brain machine interfacing and, and all that stuff. So I'm very curious about like how this all started and particularly what your parents did for a living and how that impacted the trajectory of your life and career. Interesting. Well, yeah. uh, the, the trajectory of story that, that I've often thought in terms of um, has not extended the, uh, the past generation back, but I suppose that that's a wonderful prompt as well. Um, and it's, it's perfectly poignant, actually, because mm. uh, my dad, um, he was a physicist and engineer by training, but he works in, in media relations Mm. In, in the aerospace industry and is, is now kind of freelancing and then he's got a, a wonderful project called Persons of Infrastructure um, where he's applying his insight and his craft in, in having conversations with people who, who build the, the systems and the, the structures that we rely on in our shared society. And uh, my mom is an attorney and how that pairs into what my story is developing to be uh, rather than, than what it was from the beginning is, is uh, a question of communication uh, between different, different domains. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, I mean, my, my, my personal evolution has been from an engineering background. Um, I once upon a time thought I wanted to be an architect and, and structural engineer, but uh, you know, biomedical engineering sort of 
via mechanical engineering and sports science is kind of how I got into it. Ah, I see. I was first interested in the problem, in the challenge, I should say, rather, of, of optimizing human performance in, in the physical sense. Oh. And my mom was very involved always in uh, USA track and field. And, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, Olympic level athletes have wonderful uh, labs and tools at their disposition always. So I, I did a an internship one summer at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So, um, you know, through sports science, I became um, interested in the field of, you know, using technology, science and technology to improve human function. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that evolved into rehabilitation engineering when I saw and felt a greater human need in, in the area of taking a, an injured or, or diseased body and restoring its, its function to its, uh, its true potential. And um, that's, you know, I've explored various different different modalities there. And, you know, the ones that you mentioned, uh, you know, I, well, I kind of feel this way, but all the areas I've touched actually, that I've been involved with them just enough to understand what are the, the capabilities, the limits, the challenges. And, uh, and ultimately, I don't make any claimed expertise about being you know, a nuts and bolts level precision engineer in any of these fields. And I, I defer to the wisdom and I am grateful for the wisdom of all those that I, I've worked with. But uh, my, my evolution has been rehabilitation engineering and, you know, into the idea of human machine, human technology interfacing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context, I was, I was inspired in when I was an undergrad by the DARPA revolutionizing prosthetics program, which started back in 2007 and the idea of, of bionic limbs. And I did my PhD in uh, wearable applications of tactile or haptic feedback for rehabilitation. So conveying a tactile sensation to wearers of prosthetic limbs. And my, my latest evolution, well, I work in wearable robotics now um, in my lab. And the, the current step that I'm making though is expanding beyond the devices themselves, beyond the physical, the, there's an informatic sort of uh, tissue level interaction between mm-hmm. technology and, and, um, and humanity. And then there is the, the physical, you know, the, the exoskeletal robot. And I'm getting much more interested though in the, the process of human-centered design. You know, how do we actually design our processes for making these technologies in a way that achieves the the functional objectives of, of the user, but is also on a, a broader scale um, mutually beneficial to uh, to the user, to their community, and to you know humans on, on the largest possible scale. So that's that's my story. And communicating between different areas of knowledge and different domains of expertise is uh, is is emerging to me as. A key theme, and um, in that vein, I'm working on the IEEE standardization project to develop mm-hmm. a reporting standard for neural interface research. We can get into that later, but uh, to bring it back to your question, though, uh, I would say that from uh, from my dad, I got a, a firm and, and and vivid appreciation for the value of communicating uh, complex concepts in in concrete and relatable ways. And, uh, you know, I would say it's a skill that I'm aspiring to, and certainly the brevity thing uh, <laughs> um, is a work in progress. And then uh, in terms of the, the legal tie-in, I'm just realizing how um, all levels of society, you know, from 
scientific. So by levels, I mean domains. So, you know, scientific research domains, commercial domains, you know, clinical and regulatory domains, end users, um, you know, medical payers, clinicians, and, you know, even the, the public agencies that, that fund our research. These are all different stakeholders in this map and scientific communication and regulatory mechanisms of law are, are common threads that kind of create a, a shared infrastructure and incentive framework by which things work together. So I'm traversing all these lines kind of uh, in, in parallel and trying to weave, weave the threads together. Yeah, and that is a beautiful thread. I mean, like, you know, I'm glad I got to know about uh, uh, your, your family and your history because that just makes perfect sense. And again, you talked about weaving. I literally just had a conversation the other day with an upcoming guest, uh, Bhavan Anisima. She's called the Light Weaver, and she's weaving uh, like communication, creativity, and like neuro linguistic programming to like create her own little gift to the world. And now you're doing your own weaving, I guess. but. I guess maybe yours is more synthesizing and uh, communication between all these uh, different disciplines, uh, which I find very interesting. And like, and 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 again, like in your intro, which is which I found so uh, so fascinating, is that how you were uh, you know like trying to interface right between the physical and uh, the information layer, right? And 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 the thing that really connected with me beyond that was like. Because I'm, uh, I come from like a biohacking background. Again, like the the rabbit hole that I fell into Rebel Wisdom from was the biohacking community. And in the biohacking community, you know, for, for people who are unaware, it's basically like you know young punks like me who kind of like you know like experimenting with their biology, whether it was with supplements or with wearables or with any sort of technology. Like for example, like my ring is an aura ring. Like that's like kind of like a biohacking thing. You know, it tracks my sleep, my heart rate variability, and whatnot. And so I was wondering, like, um, how this dovetails with biohacking, and if do you personally incorporate like any sort of these like 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 bionics or biohacks into your life? I'm very interested in how like you embody any of these principles, if you do, or if it's mostly just like you, your intellectual and career pursuit. <laughs> uh, that is that is a great question, actually, and um, and perhaps presents presents something of a paradox because while I am a a firm believer in in scientific processes and you know the power of of data to to improve our our collective healthcare uh, i see it as only a complement and part of a comprehensive approach to, mm. to well-being and i certainly yeah. embody that in my life in in the well in the regard that i don't actually use uh, very purposefully any sort of, um, of data tracking device. I, you know, I have a little point keeping system that I'm, that I've been implementing lately, you know, to align how I spend my attention and my time with my intention, but I don't wear a heart rate variability monitor or a step counter or a, a sleep tracker is one that I've been interested in, um, mm. as, as additional data to, uh, to, uses the point of reference, but I guess my, my philosophy of it with my own life is to, to try and lately is to been, develop a greater sense of orientation to my experience and objective points in terms of how I feel uh, the most healthy. And, and also I spend a lot of time looking at the, the scientific 
uh, literature drawing out a best mm. best picture, best guess of what are healthy practices. But at the level of granularity of actually tracking my own data, I haven't yet found a, a particular value for it. Mm. Which is not to say that I, I mean, I, I, pre, I think that these are wonderful tools and uh, no, I don't use a tracker myself. So perhaps uh, like I would say maybe it's like, you're just going more intuitively by now, like just go you with know, how you feel. I, I don't, I'm, I don't, I did not mean to make it sound like uh, listening to my body and eating whatever I want based on, you know, what my biology is telling me is what I do. I, as I said, I definitely am very keen on knowing, you know, what's what in the latest and greatest and most comprehensive interpretations of, of the science. That all was just to say that, no, I don't use any data tracking devices and I have not felt a strong need for them because I already am processing and interacting with so much information that adding more information to that in a way that um, becomes even more of a, of a cognitive load yeah. or, or burden uh, is just not something that I felt the need for in my life. But uh, I recognize and I welcome and celebrate the, the potential value of those tools in actually honing in on the, the signals that are important in, in some context and, and of being able to perhaps see the signal and the noise that we might otherwise miss. So what is your experience? I mean, the aura ring is, is a handy one, as I mentioned, that I had even seen and thought about, but uh, well, how do you, what are the, uh, the signals that you find to be the most useful, the most powerful, and uh, the, the most valuable for you? In your biohacking practice. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I actually just uh, this Thanksgiving was a wonderful test case because I know, like you know, I have a huge meal. Whenever I notice, I have a huge meal, right? And then I always have a tough time sleeping, and I feel I'm tossing and turning. My body temperature is up, and when I look at the stats the next day on my aura, it is shocking. Like my heart rate variability is like I think 19 milliseconds. And like a health, like like a good one, like on average, I'm like 80 to 90. And when I'm really good, it's in the hundreds. It's 19. It's like that, like all time low. My body temperature is like over a full degree higher than normal. Um, you know, my 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 heart rate is about 20 beats higher during my sleep. So it is insane the kind of of of, of huge difference that you see from the numbers. And then what what happens is the numbers don't always match up to how you feel or at least how you think you feel. But over time, you notice like the patterns and the correlation. Yeah. You're like, okay, maybe I don't feel it now, but okay, the next day I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to feel it. My numbers, and, and also another thing is I do fast. Like for example, uh, the day I, okay, I had like, I ate, I ate like 8,000 calories on Thanksgiving. And then the next day I fasted. I did nothing. I drank a little sip of water and that was it. And what happens the day that the day that I fast, my heart rate variability jumps up 70 points. I have my highest sleep score in like three weeks. And like, it, it like you can see, you can see like, okay, I'm not doing this for no reason. Like, oh, oh, when I fast, this is what happens. When I eat junk, this is what happens. I could, I could be in bed for eight hours in a day, but it turned out this night I was tossing and turning for like two and a half hours, which is why I feel terrible. So this is why like I, I and, and of course, like, 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 there is a danger, I believe, like whenever we add more, um, as you stated, data and, and, and any of these any of these tools, 
sometimes we could get so fixated on them and then we start to become like almost disembodied and start lo- uh-huh. like just looking at the numbers instead of actually being like, okay, how do I actually feel? Does this actually match up? You know, like what is the pattern? Not just now, but over time. So that is one of those things. And like before, like I go through these stages, like I would like, for example, I used to track like my, for like a period of like three months, four months, I track my blood glucose every day. I would stab my finger like every single day just to get like a baseline. And I did it every day. And it gets, it gets exhausting, but it's not one of those things that like I necessarily have to do all the time. It's like, I just get a baseline to understand, okay, when I eat this donut, this is what happens to me. When I don't get enough sleep, this is what happens to me. So it's kind of like I, I do a baseline, I figure it out. And then I'm like, okay, now I know I know now I know enough. Now I know enough of a pattern to be like, okay, in the future, I should try to do this and not do that. So that's my personal experience with, with the uh, biohacking tools. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I think that there are some, some interesting and, and powerful ideas there. Um, you know, the, the one, in fact, that, that I also came into contact with uh, last week when having a conversation with some colleagues um, regarding brain-machine interfaces is that, you know, these technologies um, that quantify certain aspects of our experience or our behavior of our biology, uh, they give us the, they give us tools with which to recognize connections between our choices and our uh, behaviors and our, I guess, just physiological inputs and outputs, and then how we feel and how we, um, you know, physically manifest, I guess, both in the physiological sense and then also in the behavioral sense. Yeah, I mean, the the blood glucose monitoring, I was, I was, I was doing a little bit of that for a, a little while back when I was um, delving into keto and fasting. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. I've been, I've been probing these, these dimensions of wellness as well and uh, ever interested in and uh, the way that all of these different variables are connected. So both the power, there's a, there's a power to the subjectivity that enables us to, to quantify and to track and to, to filter signal from noise. But then in measuring only certain things, our attention tends to gravitate towards mm. those things that we're measuring. Yeah. And so finding that balance to me is, is what's, uh, what's fascinating. What, what have you, what's been your experience in you know, how you decide which, um, you know, which channels, which modalities, which sensors to pay attention to. Mm. Well, well, I mean, the thing is like, I just kind of, I do like kind of these, these dives in and I, and dives out, like dives in, you know, that, and just like, I experiment for a time and it just like, well, the thing with an aura ring is just like, it's a one-time payment and I don't have to worry about anything. So it's kind of like, okay, I buy it and that's it. But other things like, for example, with supplements, if I buy like like quality of mind by, you know, Neurohacker, Daniel Schmachtenberger's company. Like I could take that for a while. Like I'm, t- like I- I'm on it right now. Right. And I feel great, but it also costs like $60 a month. And it just like, you know, like I'm not exactly, you know, bowling where I could just do that all the time, but you know, like certain things, like I have this um, grounding bracelet, which is attached to the wall socket. And it's like giving me, it's, it's grounding me. And by like, I, like, I forgot exactly how, yeah. So, and it just like, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm connecting to the electromagnetic field the the frequency of the earth. And I wear this all the time. And it's just like, I just kind of experiment. It's just kind of like a natural process. Cause like, um, you know, I'm like, I, I, for a long time I listened to, and I still listen to like, like Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey and Ben Greenfield show, a lot of these biohacking shows. And I just kind of like, I've been exposed to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these different technologies, modalities. So I just like dive in 
when I feel like, okay, I've, I've pounded it enough in my, it's been pounded into my brain enough where it seems like something I should do, but I'm not like hardcore like that. In fact, I'm like, I'm way more like, even though you say that you don't really uh, do too much of it at this time, like I'm much more closer to where you are, where I'm just like, you know, selectively do it once in a while, rather than like being like some hardcore, like Ben Greenfield kind of type. Yeah, I hear you. It's sort of a double-edged sword, the the technologies. And I, you know, I'm a fan of, of lots of the, the names you mentioned, uh, you know, Ben Greenfield among them. And I go through phases where I'm, curious and thirsty for more information like yes 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 what's you know mm. tell me more you know what are the what are the biohacks what are the tools what are the supplements and the, the superfoods and uh, you know what, what are the the bio in the indicators right you know mm, what are the yeah. blood labs i need to run and then you know and actually I, i've discovered some some valuable things that way and in fact i'm continuing to uh you know do some physio detective work but then I reach a point where it feels overwhelming and almost um, separates me from the process of actually living and experiencing. And, you know, ultimately all of, all of these optimization approaches to, you know, sort of the, the biohacking approach to uh, health thriving and longevity is to maintain the best experience of life for mm -hmm. as long as possible. Yeah. And, um, Obviously, you know, there is a lot of that that's dependent on our physical health and, you know, our, our cognitive well-being, you know, to me is just, you know, it's another dimension of, or it's another, well, it's integrated with our, our biology and with our experience and our genetics and our neurology. And, um, and yet it is something that is, that goes beyond that it is, in fact, and sometimes it is more fundamental to, to who we are, what we care about. So maintaining the integration between those two is definitely what I what I'm seeking to uh, to do, and I guess where where the the synesthesia concept comes into play as well. Mm, yeah, definitely, and I would love to touch on that synesthesia. And again, like I believe it's seven core principles now, and uh, I'm very interested in going to that soon. And but like I, I'm just something I'm really interested in, and I really want to ask you about because again, like for a long time, again we're talking about the biohacking, the bionics, and whatnot. And it's not just the biohacking, but like, it's not just like, you know, and to improve my health, but it was also to kind of expand the concept of what I am, of what we can be, of what humanity can be. And so like um, this philosophy of transhumanism, I was into for a long time. And a lot of people in the tech world are very, you know, are very into this. They want to basically transcend uh, their biology. Um, as of late, I've kind of moved away from that because it almost, well, I don't want to you know, throw my judgment out there, but like there are some kind of aspects of it that I find a little unsavory and, it, and almost as if like there's like a running away from something rather than trying to grow um, from within, from what one can become. So I was just wondering if you have any specific thoughts on whether it's transhumanism specifically or about the idea of transcending what it means to be human and how maybe your work uh, is uh, integrated with that? Uh, great question. I, I too have, have evolved in my feelings about transhumanism and um, and I guess I have ambivalent feelings because, mm. you know, it, um, you know, when I first encountered the work of, of Ray Kurzweil circa, you know, I guess it was 2010 or 11, you know, he had Transcendent Nine and 
and I was speaking of it, the singularity, um, it seemed to be a very transformative and empowering vision of the future and what we can be. And also it's, it gives the promise of extending the self beyond the, the limitations and the biological limitations that were granted. And so mm. is very alluring in that regard. But uh, I too uh, have come to, to feel that it, it, misses, it misses an aspect of celebrating the, the messiness and the imperfection of, of humanity and even in even its its finitude as something that can be liberating you know liberate us to live in and appreciate and um, make the most vivid and fulfilling experience of of the present moment and so I would describe myself more in the vein of uh, what Douglas Rushkoff calls uh, team human. Mm, yes. uh, I think technology needs to be developed. Uh, I guess part of my mission really, as I mentioned with regard to human-centered design, is to develop technology in a way that is in service of humanity, not the other way around. Mm, technology yeah. makes a wonderful tool, but a, a terrible master, as I believe Tim Ferriss likes to say. And um, yeah, and so many of our assumptions get built into our technologies without even thinking about it. And so, uh, yeah, I'm with you in terms of trying to guide, I'm trying to be a steward of technological development in the way that is the most fulfilling and constructive to actual humans and human experience. And in so doing, I'm trying to recognize the, I'm thinking in an Italian word, in the English word. <laughs> Go ahead, delight us with the Italian, trust me. All the ladies will love it. <laughs> the fundamentally separate value, but complementary, separate but complementary value of subjective experience of of consciousness um as that pertains to you know our, our values and uh, and thus how we interact with each other and how we interact with our environment and the different tools and technologies we use to do that mm. yeah i mean that um as i was going into your work that's something that i, I noticed like i really appreciated this common thread of, of, of integrating humanity into tech, which I thought was so refreshing because, you know, it's like this whole tech thing, this whole tech paradigm. And for a while I was, I was honestly in the camp of a techno utopian. Oh, technology will solve all the problems. Fast forward to 2020. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's not so much though. It does afford us. It can be used in for the good. For example, the fact that I could even, you know, communicate and connect with people with you over zoom even though Zoom has its own issues. But yeah, and and again, this whole thing about human-centered and about, uh, as, again, as we mentioned in uh, the intro and in, in our talk is about how you want to also have the communication layer, maybe the software layer, uh, as you want to call it. And in the intro at, at the Rebel Wisdom Circle, you talked about this thing that's emerging that you're working on and called Cinesapia. So I was wondering if you could enlighten our audience about what this is and what you hope to bring into this world with something like Cinesapia. It certainly uh, would be my pleasure. I would say that uh, the Cinesapia concept is, is less something that I want to enlighten people with than something that I am developing just as a, a value system and, and framework to mm. enable collective enlightenment, you know, and uh, I describe Cinesapia as the uh, the collective quest for wisdom, 
via the integration of knowledge across all domains mm. of uh, human experience. And um, yeah, the idea of, of connection actually that you mentioned is, is one of the, um, what I have posited as seven, I guess, provisional core principles that, that seem to me to be sort of perhaps useful as requirements for interoperability of, of you know, of human interoperability, really, mm. in terms of knowledge, in terms of um, being able to have a meaningful and generative interaction with people. But uh, the, the principles that I have, have posited are, uh, are compassion, uh, curiosity, connection, humility, so recognizing the limits of, of ourselves and of our knowledge, uh, truth, which is, is a rabbit hole on its own that we can come back to, mm-hmm. uh, adaptation or progress or iteration, and, and finally diversity. And, um, and, but the, so those concepts are intended to be sort of sufficient to enable a continually evolving and improving experience uh, of the world and a, uh, a more fruitful and, and shared well-being amongst us humans. But uh, it's, it's not intended to be a hierarchical framework. Uh, you know, I would love and continue to invite uh, discourse around, you know, how to define the, these principles and, and how, you know, collective wisdom seeking um, mm, should, should emerge. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like that. That and that makes perfect sense. That someone who's interested in this collective quest for wisdom would be, of course, joining a, a community such as Rebel Wisdom, which is a, a part of a larger project for uh, collective sense making. And what you described there about trying to connect all these, you know, all all domains of knowledge into one, it's consilience, which dovetails with what's going on. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel Schmachtenberger's consilience project. Uh, which uh, I'm glad that um, I was able to join their Facebook group and like I'm looking into the conversations and like I would suggest anyone interested in anything such as this, uh, get in contact uh, and, and with, with Dylan Schmachter and getting involved with that continuous project because that's amazing. And also get in contact with Zag and try and co-create this, 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 this greater framework and, and let this thing emerge, whatever this is, this collective sense-making project. And one of the things that when you mentioned the Cinesapia, Again, because coming from my background and knowing uh, from your uh, introduction, your background, your in uh, your career, I asked you, you know, like a speculative question, like, so how could it be that we could possibly integrate augmentative technology into implementing these uh, Cinesapia principles or like this greater, you know, quest for uh, collective wisdom? So I'm just wondering, like, if we could just like explore, like, uh, have you ha- have you given it any thought, and what are some ideas or ways you think that this could possibly happen? Because I'm very curious about this. Uh, another great question. Um, yeah, the the role of technology in facilitating the uh, the fruition of uh, the Cinesapia vision is uh, definitely one that I'm continuing to uh, to grapple with and, and evolve with because. Um, as I mentioned earlier, with regard to my my feelings and, and experience with uh, quantified self and, and biohacking devices, I realized that there is both tremendous power and capability, and also there is ability to fixate 
too much on certain signals and then lose the actual picture. Mm. So uh, something that occurred to me kind of in this vein was that, you know, ironically, technology, as it is making us more and more, it's enabling us to be connected across time and space in wonderful ways. Um, but then technologies themselves, as they are becoming more networked and interdependent, there is mm, a yeah. cross time and space in wonderful ways. Um, but then technologies themselves, as they are becoming more networked and interdependent, there is mm, a yeah. isolating a lot of us, you know, and obviously the, uh, the, the current coronavirus situation has, has forced a lot of that, you know, onto steroids. The answer to your question regarding the relationship between technology, data, and Synesapia is really that it is one tool. It is one way of knowing, to use uh, John Vervecki's uh, description, um, that contributes to the whole picture, but it's only part of the picture. In fact, you know, I had the, the wonderful realization um, during a reflection just in the past few days where I was remembering, it works actually better in, in Italian, Scienza, so science, is part of the word for knowledge, which is conoscenza. Ah. And I was reflecting just on how having the, you know, so science seeks to rigorously evaluate and quantify pieces, but it's not until we put those pieces together that we, that emerges a sense of, uh, of knowledge and then on a greater level, wisdom. And then, uh, you know, it works differently in English, but then to a different effect, which I also like, which is, you know, science being a part of conscience. Mm, and yeah. yeah, I mean, that actually points maybe more directly in, in the direction of science being only part of the map, only part of reality. And it's, you know, I guess no, no coincidence to me either, linguistically speaking, that, you know, the, the word reality and truth um, has become kind of polarizing because there we can talk about objective and subjective realities. And when we don't specify, you know, reality actually includes both the, the measurable yes, yeah. and the, the immeasurable. So neurotech gives a great capability to understand the dynamics that, that contribute to, um, well, in, in a lot of cases to, to pathological conditions, but it gives us the ability to recognize uh, causes and, and effects that we might not otherwise be aware of. Countervailing effect where they are, countervailing effect where they are isolating a lot of us, you know, and obviously the, uh, the, the current coronavirus situation has, has forced a lot of that, you know, onto steroids and provide, can provide feedback regarding actually our wellness. That's, that's a science that's, uh, that's young and, and is growing. So I'll leave that aside. It's a point to navigate with this respect to our wellness and it gives, can give us a tool to develop a better awareness with ourselves if you want to talk about it in neurofeedback technologies. But ultimately, um, if it is fixated on with singularity and not comprehensively including the actual lived elements, then, then I think it loses its value. So it's, it's a yin and it's a yang and a symbiotic relationship that I'm seeking to promote. Hmm.
Yeah, definitely. And like, there are many different uh, ways to tackle uh, this sort of issue about how do we properly integrate with technology. And again, like there are, you know, many schools of thought and we could, you know, I'll mention again, like the, the singularitarians. Um, I don't know if Elon Musk may be in that camp or he may not, you know, I'm not exactly sure where he kind of fits, you know, they're, they're the, the, the pro AI, they're the, uh, the, the ones who are, you know, talk about the alignment problem and all that. And like, I, I'm really interested in your specific thoughts on, of course, because this is your line of work. And of course, everyone knows Elon Musk, uh, you know, Neuralink and what he's doing with uh, brain machine interfaces and brain computer interfaces. So I was like, as someone whose professional works concentrates uh, on the hardware and whose pastime works more on the software. So what are your thoughts on like this future of neurally augmented uh humans and, and, and your work with brain, uh, brain machine interfaces and, and the rest of kind of like the ecology? I would say that I am cautiously optimistic and I would say that I am, well, proactively optimistic, proactive in the sense of needing to take ownership and needing to, to guide our developments in an optimistic direction. Um, I do not take it for granted that merely creating more technology and creating more tools and creating more data uh, automatically results in better health or mm. a more connected experience. And uh, I mean, the whole story of the internet as it has played out, I think is, is a wonderful historical example. The, yes. the core assumption was, you know, from the beginning was about increasing connectivity and democratization of information and data. And, uh, and we have found that in the absence of a value system that knows how to recognize and how to appropriately value, uh, you know, actual human values rather mm -hmm. than just, you know, time spent on a screen, which turns out to be very much uh, in tension with a lot of our personal values and objectives. Um, that turns out to be kind of a pathological and as we found increasingly uh, polarizing and overwhelming and confusing approach. The, the line of questioning that I typically ask at the scientific level of, of study design and of technology design is asking both, you know, what do we really care about? What are we really trying to measure? Mm. What can we measure? And those two things usually, if not always, are not perfectly aligned. In the concrete example of a, of a rehabilitation study, you know, we want to know how well as a result of robotic rehabilitation training individuals are able to go about their daily lives and accomplish what we call activities of daily living. And, you know, even beyond that, we want to know how that contributes to their quality of life. So then, I mean, there's, there's the, there enters an entire social dynamic there, but what are we able to actually measure in a clinic, in a laboratory? You know, we're measuring um, kinematic measures of, you know, how well they can perform certain actions, you know, we can quantify physical sensation and, and function. And then there are clinical scales that get more subjective, you know, where there is a therapist involved that is interacting with the patient and, and assessing how well they work. And then there are questionnaires that just ask the patient about their experience. And, you know, we use all of these different levels, but ultimately it's, it's really the experience account. So in terms of designing a study to account for that, you know, how you choose your outcome measures at each of those different levels is, is critically important. And then even the questions that you're asking with your studies in the first place, 
um, is is incredibly important. I mean, there's so much of a of a parallel that I've realized between the scientific process and the process of good communication, um, yeah. which we can get into. But then, in terms of technology design, you know, similar analysis applies. We want to be designing technology with objectives in mind that actually are serving user needs. If you don't start with the question, what are we trying to enable people to do? Or what's the experience we're trying to enable them to have? If instead you're just thinking about a thing that you're trying to make, then you can make the thing, but the thing doesn't do what you want and or has unintended consequences. So, um, you know, the perspective I bring is always one of tying the study and or the technology to the human experience. And thank you so much. I mean, that's very enlightening and like, I could definitely see, again, like one of the themes uh, um, that I've come across in, in listening to you is like, you really want to transfer and translate, you know, from like one, you know, supposedly silo domain to another when really everything is connected. And it's almost like you're not even necessarily trying to, or I guess you are con uh, connecting them and in an attempt to connect them, but it's like, it's already there, but I guess maybe you're just like reifying it or just making it more concrete or making people see the connections that are already present. And again, like yeah, your work with interoperability. And as you mentioned before, uh, you're, I believe chairing the IEEE's uh, standardization working group. Uh, we're trying to, you know, get all these uh, standards, you know, uh, you know, standardized, you know, between all these different domains and groups. And, uh, a concept that I came up with, um, and actually I just gave a presentation, uh, and it was published uh, last week, on uh, something called a meta-utopia, which, you know, uh, instead of but the utopia with an EU, so it's basically meta is transcending and including, and the utopia EU stands for like a good place, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a space for many good places. And so baked into the concept of a meta utopia, instead of being like a utopia, meaning it's not a place, uh, or a, a utopia EU place, which is one good place. Talk about a meta utopia, a space for many good places. And talk about a world where we could have all these diverse points of view. And then we have some sort of framework. We have some sort of underlying uh, value system, which enables all of them to coexist and interact with each other in a generative way. So I'm just wondering, like, how do we kind of translate what you're doing uh, in your work, right? Like, what kind of principles can we also use to transfer this over to, you know, the socio-political world of, of humans, you know, this messy world of humans trying to be like, hey, we want to get along, but we have these differing views of reality. We have these different perceptions on what truth is, you know, the most contentious, uh, you know, subject in all of philosophy. So I was wondering what your thoughts is on how do we translate what, what you know, what you've learned and, and what you're working on into this broader world? Uh, that, that is a question that I find myself uh, exploring often. And mm. I think the one word, that I would offer in response is uh, is communication. Mm. And this ties actually to, to the standardization initiative. It ties back to, to what I was uh, saying, or I guess complements what I was saying earlier about the human-centered, you know, scientific process. In addition to tying to human experience, having a common language mm, yes, through which yes. we can exchange information is key. 
Uh, and this is true at, you know, at the linguistic level, at the cultural level, and it's true at the technological level where we talk about interoperability. And then, you know, the, the scientific standardization is, the reporting standardization is all about reporting scientific studies in a way that the knowledge from one study can be interpreted appropriately, can be uh, reproduced, and then ultimately, you know, in the ideal case, you know, data can be aggregated and reused in order to create a more comprehensive picture. But in order for that to work, in order for communication to work, there needs to be a, a shared understanding of what different words mean, what different concepts mean, and what different metrics mean. You don't want to talk mm. numerically. And so the what it means to be rigorous in terms of scientific process or communication means that everything is well defined in, in such a way that it can be uh, retraced and, and reproduced in some other context. And that, that's key. We're communicating phenomena or experience to other people into other, say, researchers in the, in the scientific case. Anyway, to bring this back to communication, the point is to orient ourselves with regard to a shared system of communication in a shared framework of understanding mm. while simultaneously recognizing that that is only a part of the the greater reality so in the case of uh, our cultural discourse my inclusion of the truth concept as part of synesapia is intended to first of all not to negate the subjectivity and the diversity the beautiful and welcome diversity of experience between individuals, but to also recognize the need to align and to coordinate with regard to a shared reference reality. We could call this, you know, objective truth or, or 3D or physical reality, mm. but basically it's the domain of what science has been able to measure and to explore and to, to reproduce. And high quality communication entails both clarity about the information we're communicating and then also openness and awareness and curiosity in order to continue expanding our models, continue expanding our understanding, and to take a wider, to take a wider perspective to incorporate different, not just different data points, but different ways, different sensor types, different ways of knowing, different types of information, because that is what creates the most comprehensive picture. And you know, I think it's only through that integrated approach that we get to anything that's called wisdom. And, and I, I love the linguistic truth that, you know, when we put all of our knowledge from different places together, what do we get? We get a body. We get an organism of knowledge that necessarily, you know, in the same way bodies, um, you know, have different sense organs. So too in, in science and in society, we have different ways of knowing. We have different perspectives, you know, different vantage points from which to view things. And we have, you know, different types of information and those all need to be integrated together. Wow. I mean, thank you so much for that perspective. I mean, like I've had a blast learning about your, your history and, and your viewpoints. Very, very interesting. And obviously you're in a very exciting field. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm like, 
I'm kind of tech geeky. I'm sure a lot, maybe a lot of people listening as well are also very interested in that. And not just the tech geeky side, but also the sense making side, the beautiful synthesis of those. So like, I was very curious. So uh, are there any specific uh, maybe schools of thought or thinkers uh, who are, are great uh, of great inspiration to you or that you get a lot of, of, of insight from? I'm very curious to hear if you could share with the audience. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I consider myself to be uh, standing on the shoulders of giants in terms mm. of both knowledge and and insight at all times. So, um, you know, a recent inspiration to me has been has been Charles Eisenstein. Eisenstein, yeah. And um, I guess a, a complimentary one that I referred to earlier uh, it was John Bervecki who refers to the four different sort of ways of knowing. You know, there is the propositional, the perspectival, and the par- participatory and procedural. I, I, I skipped over that one. The common threads, though, are that there are different levels at which we can evaluate and, and appreciate things to be true. And in what mm. Charles Eisenstein, I think, has done a wonderful job to to illustrate and articulate is that there is a dimension of understanding of the world that gets represented in a lot of symbolic ways, some of them more constructive than others. But uh, I mean, to take a, just an, ex- an example of you know, that's alive in the, the current moment is the idea of conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an overloaded term and has, you know, problems and limitations. But the core concept is that Things can hold symbolic truth without necessarily reflecting perfectly the the physical and literal truth. And Mm. there is a necessary value in in recognizing that symbolic truth, but then not collapsing into the the rigid way of thinking that says, no, 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 these particular claims we're making about, you know, who's controlling the world or about what's true metaphysically or what happens after death or whatever it is that there need not be a direct uh, literal truth in order for there to be meaningful information there. And that the fact that we are, that we share and maintain these, uh, these tendencies and, and the, these types of, of stories is representative of, of the fact that our physical truth and reality seems to only capture one band, call it one sliver of our net experience and it's ultimately it's an attempt at sense making but one that is much less um well it's not objective it's not rigorous but that doesn't mean that it's it's not valuable and that it's not a necessary part of the of the knowledge and understanding picture that we need to create if we want to align and to to live together in a symbiotic way at scale Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, talk about like talk about living symbiotically at scale. Like, there's this metaphor. It's not even necessarily a metaphor. Like, I literally see this like this next stage, this meta crisis, as like the growing pains of our becoming the human superorganism. It's like we're we're trying to get there, and it's just like no, we keep pulling back. We don't want to do it yet. Like, we have to. We're not aligned yet. We're just like something. I feel like something has to happen, or else like perhaps like. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We talked about all these things about uh, about the tech world and what kind of future it's creating. And like, again, and then also the translation with how like, in the, with, with the meta utopia and how we could translate from the tech and the IEEE and those standardizations, this communication, this language to this 
this, this, this meta utopian language for all these different groups to come together on, on, on a shared language and come to, you know, a, a coherent, uh, you know, way of being. So I was wondering, speaking on this future, this maybe symbiotic or not so symbiotic future, where do you see us heading both in terms of tech and your realm and the overall tech world and the overall, you know, world, the messy world of humans, where could we be heading and where would you like to see us heading? I love the way you phrase that in terms of what's the course we're on and what is the possible course? Mm. In fact, uh, well, as, as Eisenstein puts it, you know, what is the more beautiful world that our hearts know exactly. is possible? Mm. Um, but I see us at, uh, at a point of great acceleration and potential inflection. Mm. Uh, the pandemic situation has certainly accelerated a lot of the transformations in uh, our technological sy systems and you know, particularly the acceleration of information technology and its use and incorporation and adoption throughout more and more aspects of our life. And, uh, you know, as I've understood, the, the tech sector is as alive and well as ever. And yet yes. on the other side of that, mm. they talk about what's called the K-shaped recovery, where forward thinking, you know, technologically advanced approaches and solutions that are solving the problems that are salient to us now are getting accelerated, but that a benefit is getting concentrated in, in certain domains and sectors at the expense of everybody else. So mm. what I see is we are at a point of, of disalignment between our technological development and our human values. And I see us at a point of increasing awareness about that. And, and that is something that I, I really am trying to take a hold of and, and to facilitate with everything I'm doing in and with Cinesapia, with, you know, with scientific reporting standards. I'm trying to give us a, a way to recognize that the technology has a wonderful potential to help humanity. And we should not, by any means, uh, issue it for that reason. We should not reject it. At the same time, we need to be vigilant in recognizing we need to recalibrate and realign, to, to use the, the word mm -hmm. you highlighted earlier, design and then our also our application of technology in a way that, that fulfills our values. And so my mission is really to just create a system of communication whereby that process can happen because it needs to be a process just like science um, is is ongoing it, you know that's why they call it research um, so too our collective project of world building needs to be communicative and connected and iterative and open and curious mm, and, and yeah. diverse you know all of, all of these synesapia principles that I mentioned at the beginning and I think technology really is just it's an embodiment of our capabilities, but it's ultimately, you know, the human brain. Now, that's really the technology that needs to be, I think, advanced. The, the human operating system, you know, mm. cognitively and emotionally, that's what, needs, that's what needs the upgrade in order to enable us to build and to, to occupy and to enjoy the world we want to live in. So, um, you know, I'm, that's how I would leave it, you know, to let the conversation be continued. And that's what we're trying to do. And try to you know empower conversation and figure out how to ways what are the best ways to to have the the best ones. Mm. Wow, 
Zach, uh, what a pleasure to have you on uh, again. It was so amazing. Uh, again, learning about your, your your history, your backstory, and then all your amazing work with like brain machine interfaces and no re rehabilitation and your thoughts on the world. Again, thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find out more about you and connect and continue the conversation? Absolutely. Well, uh, I would welcome any, uh, well, any direct contact. In order to follow the, the Cinesapia channel, uh, it's currently on Instagram. It's at Cinesapia. It's sin as in synthesis, S-Y-N, letter E, and sapia as in homo sapiens, S-A-P-I-A. -A. So S-Y-N-E-S-A-P-I-A, -A, at Cinesapia. Uh, that's where I have been just keeping a, a running log of, of reflections. And, uh, and that is going to be um, cinesapia.org as well. Ooh, it is the site. Wow. And then in order to connect with any of the IEEE work, we are now working group number P2794. And uh, if, you, if you Google IEEE P2794, and it, well, you'll find us that way. It's the reporting standard for in vivo neural interface research. RSNIR, R-S-N-I-R is our acronym. And um, there is information on, on that webpage regarding how to get in contact with me. And I welcome any input, any feedback, any engagement in, in any of the, uh, the space that we have traversed. Mm. You heard it here, people. Connect with Zach at Cinesapia at S-Y-N-E, S-A-P-I-A at Instagram, Cinesapia.org. I never, .org, I never knew that this was existing, but it is now. So I'm very excited about that. Catch him there. And again, IEEE, peace, 2794. All right, that's it. Again, thank you so much, Zach. That's it for another episode of Nordic Nomads. Peace out and step up because the world needs you. Okay, bye. And we are...